Welcome to Jabberwocky Audio Theatre. This podcast is made possible by Francis Abbey, a listener like you who's backing us on Patreon. Thank you. Visit our website at jabberaudio.com support to learn more or go to patreon.com slash team jabberwocky. The following audio theater is rated ADG for general audiences. Jabberwocky Audio Theater presents Through a Glass, Darkly. Tonight's production, The Old Nurse's Story by Elizabeth Gaskell. First published in 1852. Part 2 of 2. In Part 1 of The Old Nurse's Story, Hester relates a tale from years past when she cared for a suddenly orphaned young girl, Rosamond. The pair are sent to live at the stately Furnival Manor, where they meet the elderly and near-deaf Miss Furnival and her dour servant and longtime companion, Mrs. Stark. Settling in with the household servants, footman James and his wife Dorothy, they soon adjust to life in the manor, and little Rosamond quickly charms the otherwise stoic Miss Furnival and Mrs. Stark. They spend their time exploring the vast corridors of the manor, though the east wing is sealed off from the rest of the house. During one such exploration, they discover a portrait of Miss Furnival in her youth, then referred to as Miss Grace, as well as one of her elder sister, Miss Maud, though the latter is not on display, but rather turned away, facing the wall. This piques Hester's curiosity, but Dorothy is fearful, merely hinting at some dark family history. As winter sets in, Hester believes she hears someone playing the organ built into the wall of the Great Hall, but James quickly dismisses this as a trick of the wind. Eventually, Hester learns from Bessie, the kitchen maid, that some believe the instrument is being played by the ghost of the Old Lord on stormy winter evenings, but reveals nothing more out of fear of discovery. Undeterred, Hester examines the organ herself, only to find the inner workings smashed entirely, and she comes to dread the strange music. One snowy Sunday afternoon, Hester goes to church, leaving little Rosamond in the care of Miss Furnival and Mrs. Stark. But on returning to the manor, she can find no trace of the girl. The entire household joins the search, until Hester notices small footprints heading off into the wintry night. Running out into the snow, Hester is met by a shepherd carrying the child, near frozen and insensate. Rushing desperately back to the house, Hester is able to restore some semblance of life to Rosamond, and finally the girl falls asleep in her warm bed. Hester attends to her through the night, until the girl awakens in the morning and begins recounting the prior evening's events. She said that she had fancied that she should like to go to Dorothy, for that both the old ladies were asleep, and it was very dull in the drawing room, and that, as she was going through the west lobby, she saw the snow through the high window falling, falling soft and steady. But she wanted to see it lying pretty and white on the ground, so she made her way into the great hall, and then going to the window, she saw it bright and soft upon the drive. But while she stood there, she saw a little girl. Not so old as she was, but so pretty, said my darling. And this little girl beckoned me to come out. And oh, she was so pretty and so sweet, I could not choose but to go. 
and this other little girl had taken her by the hand, and side by side the two had gone round the east corner. Now you are a naughty little girl, and telling stories, said I. What would your good mamma, that is in heaven, and never told a story in her life, say to her little Rosamond, if she heard her, and I dare say she does, telling stories? Indeed, Hester, sobbed out my child, I'm telling you true, I am. Don't tell me, said I, very stern, I tracked you by your footmarks through the snow. There were only yours to be seen, and if you had had a little girl to go hand in hand with you up the hill, don't you think the footprints would have gone along with yours? I can't help it, dear, dear Hester, she said, crying. If they did not, I never looked at her feet, but she held my hand, fast and tight, in her little one, and it was very, very cold, and she took me up the fell path, up to the holly trees, and there I saw a lady weeping and crying. But when she saw me, she asked her weeping, and smiled very proud and grand, and took me on her knee, and began to lull me to sleep. And that's all, Hester, but that is true, and my dear mamma knows it, said she, crying. So I thought the child was in a fever, and pretended to believe her as she went over her story, over and over again, and always the same. At last Dorothy knocked at the door with Miss Rosamond's breakfast, and she told me the old ladies were in the eating parlor, and they wanted to speak to me. They had both been in the night nursery the evening before, but it was after Miss Rosamond was asleep, so they had only looked at her and not asked me any questions. I shall catch it, thought I to myself as I went along the north gallery, and yet I thought, taking courage, it was in their charge I left her, and it's they that's to blame for letting her steal away unknown and unwatched. So I went in boldly and told my story. I told it all to Miss Furnival, shouting it close to her ear. But when it came to the mention of the other little girl out in the snow, coaxing and tempting her out and willing her up to the grand and beautiful lady by the holly tree, she threw her arms up, her old and withered arms, and cried aloud, Oh, heaven forgive, have mercy. Mrs. Stark took hold of her roughly enough, I thought, but she was past Mrs. Stark's management and spoke to me in a kind of wild warning and authority. Hester, keep her from that child. It will lure her to her death, that evil child. Tell her it is a wicked, naughty child. Then Mrs. Stark hurried me out of the room, where I was indeed glad enough to go, but Miss Furnival kept shrieking out, Oh, have mercy, wilt thou never forgive? It is many, many long year ago. I was very uneasy in my mind after that. I durst never leave Miss Rosamond night or day for fear she might slip off again after some fancier or other, and all the more because I thought I could make out that Miss Furnival was crazy from their odd ways about her, and I was afraid lest something of the same kind, which might be in the family, you know, hung over my darling. And the great frost never ceased all this time, and whenever there was a more stormy night than usual, between the gusts and through the wind, we heard the old lord playing on the great organ. But old lord or not, wherever Miss Rosamond went, there I followed. For my love for her pretty helpless orphan was stronger than my fear for the grand and terrible sound. Besides, it rested with me to keep her cheerful and merry as beseemed her age. So we played together and wandered together here and there and everywhere, for I dared never lose sight of her again in that large rambling house. 
And so it happened that one afternoon, not long before Christmas Day, we were playing together on the billiard table in the great hall. Not that we knew the right way of playing, but she liked to roll the smooth ivory balls with her hands, and I liked to do whatever she did. And by and by, without her noticing it, it grew dusk indoors, though it was still light in the open air. And I was thinking of taking her back into the nursery, when all of a sudden she cried out, Look, Hester, look, there's my poor little girl out in the snow. I turned toward the long, narrow windows, and there, sure enough, I saw a little girl, less than my Miss Rosamond, dressed all unfit to be out of doors such a bitter night, crying and beating against the window panes as if she wanted to be let in. She seemed to sob and wail till Miss Rosamond could bear it no longer and was flying to the door to open it, when all of a sudden, and close upon us, the great organ pealed out so loud and thundering it fairly made me tremble all the more. When I remembered that, even in the stillness of that dead cold weather, I had heard no sound of little battering hands upon the window glass, although the phantom child had seemed to put forth all its force, and although I had seen it wail and cry, no faintest touch of sound had fallen upon my ears. Whether I remembered all this at the very moment, I do not know. The great organ sound had so stunned me into terror. But this I know. I caught up Miss Rosamond before she got the hall door open and clutched her and carried her away, kicking and screaming into the large, bright kitchen where Dorothy and Agnes were busy with their mince pies. What's the matter with my sweet one? cried Dorothy as I bore in Miss Rosamond, who was sobbing as if her heart would break. She won't let me open the door for my little girl to come in, and she'll die if she is out on the fells all night. Cruel, naughty Hester, she said, slapping me. But she might have struck harder, for I had seen a look of ghastly terror on Dorothy's face, which made my very blood run cold. Shut the back kitchen door fast and bolt it well, she said to Agnes. She said no more, and she gave me raisins and almonds to quiet Miss Rosamond. But she sobbed about the little girl in the snow, and she would not touch any of the good things. I was thankful when she cried herself to sleep in bed. Then I stole down to the kitchen and told Dorothy I had made up my mind. I would carry my darling back to my father's house in Applethwaite, where, if we lived humbly, we lived at peace. I said I had been frightened enough with the old lord's organ playing, but now that I had seen for myself this little moaning child, all decked out as no child in the neighborhood could be, beating and battering to get in, yet always without sound or noise, with the dark wound on its right shoulder, and that Miss Rosamond had known it again for the phantom that had nearly lured her to her death, which Dorothy knew was true, I would stand it no longer. I saw Dorothy change color once or twice. When I was done, she told me she did not think I could take Miss Rosamond with me, for that she was my lord's ward, and I had no right over her, and she asked if I would leave the child that I was so fond of just for sounds and sights that could do me no harm, and that they had all had to get used to in their turns. I was all in a hot, trembling passion, and I said it was very well for her to speak that knew what these sights and noises betokened, and that had, perhaps, had something to do with the spectre child while it was alive. And I taunted her so that she told me all she knew at last. And then I wished I had never been told, for it only made me more afraid than ever. 
The old lord was Miss Furnival's father, Miss Grace, as Dorothy called her, for Miss Maud was the elder and Miss Furnival by rights. The old lord was eaten up with pride. Such a proud man was never seen or heard of, and his daughters were like him. No one was good enough to wed them, although they had choice enough, for they were the great beauties of their day, as I had seen by their portraits, where they hung in the state drawing-room. But, as the old saying is, pride will have a fall. These two haughty beauties fell in love with the same man, and he no better than a foreign musician, whom their father had down from London to play music with him at the manor house. But above all things, next to his pride, the old lord loved music. He could play on nearly every instrument that ever was heard of, and it was a strange thing. It did not soften him, but he was a fierce, dour old man, and had broken his poor wife's heart with his cruelty, they said. He was mad after music, and would pay any money for it. So we got this foreigner to come, who made such beautiful music that they said the very birds on the trees stopped their singing to listen. And by degrees, this foreign gentleman got such a hold over the old lord that nothing would serve him but that he must come every year. And it was he that had the great organ brought from Holland and built up in the hall where it stood now. He taught the old lord to play on it. But many a many a time, when Lord Furnival was thinking of nothing but his fine organ and his finer music, the dark foreigner was walking in the woods with one of the young ladies, now Miss Maud and then Miss Grace. Miss Maud won the day and carried off the prize such as it was, and he and she were married, all unknown to anyone. And before he made his next yearly visit, she had been confined of a little girl at a farmhouse on the moors, while her father and Miss Grace thought she was away at Doncaster races. But though she was a wife and a mother, she was not a bit softened, but as haughty and passionate as ever, and perhaps more so, for she was jealous of Miss Grace, to whom her foreign husband paid a deal of court by way of blinding her, as he told his wife. But Miss Grace triumphed over Miss Maud, and Miss Maud grew fiercer and fiercer, both with her husband and with her sister, and the former, who could easily shake off what was disagreeable and hide himself in foreign countries, went away a month before his usual time that summer, and half threatened that he would never come back again. Meanwhile, the little girl was left at the farmhouse, and her mother used to have her horse saddled and gallop wildly over the hills to see her once every week at the very least, for where she loved, she loved, and where she hated, she hated. And the old lord went on playing, playing his organ, and the servants thought the sweet music he made had soothed down his awful temper, of which, Dorothy said, some terrible tales could be told. He grew infirm, too, and had to walk with a crutch, and his son, that was the present Lord Furnival's father, was with the army in America, and the other son at sea, so Miss Maud had it pretty much her own way. And she and Miss Grace grew colder and bitterer to each other every day, till at last they hardly ever spoke, except when the Lord was by. The foreign musician came again the next summer, but it was for the last time, for they led him such a life with their jealousy and their passions that he grew weary and went away and never was heard of again. 
and Miss Maud, who had always meant to have her marriage acknowledged when her father should be dead, was left now a deserted wife, whom nobody knew to have been married, with a child that she dare not own, although she loved it to distraction, living with a father whom she feared and a sister whom she hated. When the next summer passed over and the dark foreigner never came, both Miss Maud and Miss Grace grew gloomy and sad. They had a haggard look about them, though they looked handsome as ever. But by and by Maud brightened, for her father grew more and more infirm, and more than ever carried away by his music, and she and Miss Grace lived almost entirely apart, having separate rooms, the one on the west side, Miss Maud on the east, those very rooms which were now shut up. So she thought she might have a little girl with her, and no one need ever know except those who dared not speak about it, and were bound to believe that it was, as she said, a cottager's child that she had taken a fancy to. All this, Dorothy said, was pretty well known, but what came afterwards no one knew except Miss Grace and Mrs. Stark, who was even then her maid, and much more of a friend to her than her sister had been. But the servant supposed, from words that were dropped, that Miss Maud had triumphed over Miss Grace and told her that all the time the dark foreigner had been mocking her with pretended love, he was her own husband. The color left Miss Grace's cheek and lips that very day forever, and she was heard to say many a time that sooner or later she would have her revenge, and Mrs. Stark was forever spying about the East Rooms. One fearful night, just after the new year had come in, when the snow was lying thick and deep and the flakes were still falling, fast enough to blind anyone who might be out and abroad, there was a great and violent noise heard, and the old lord's voice above all cursing and swearing awfully, and the cries of a little child, and the proud defiance of a fierce woman, and the sound of a blow, and a dead stillness, and moans and wailings dying away on the hillside. Then the old lord summoned all of his servants and told them with terrible oaths and words more terrible that his daughter had disgraced herself and he had turned her out of doors, her and her child, and that if ever they gave her help or food or shelter, he prayed they might never enter heaven. And all the while Miss Grace stood by him, white and still as any stone, and when he had ended, she heaved a great sigh, as much as to say her work was done and her end was accomplished. But the old lord never touched his organ again and died within the year, and no wonder, for on the morrow of that wild and fearful night, the shepherds, coming down the fell side, found Miss Maud sitting, all crazy and smiling, under the holly trees, nursing a dead child with a terrible mark on its right shoulder. But that was not what killed her, said Dorothy. It was the frost and the cold. Every wild creature was in its hole and every beast in its fold, while the child and its mother were turned out to wander on the fells. And now you know all, and I wonder if you are less frightened now. I was more frightened than ever, but I said I was not. I wished Miss Rosamond and myself well out of that dreadful house for ever, but I would not leave her, 
and I dared not take her away, but, oh, how I watched her and guarded her. We bolted the doors and shut the window shutters fast an hour or more before dark, rather than leave them open five minutes too late. But my little lady still heard the weird child crying and mourning, and not all we could do or say could keep her from wanting to go to her and let her in from the cruel wind and the snow. All this time I kept away from Miss Furnival and Mrs. Stark as much as ever I could, for I feared them. I knew no good could be about them with their grey hard faces and their dreamy eyes looking back into the ghastly years that were gone. But even in my fear I had a kind of pity for Miss Furnival, at least. Those gone down to the pit can hardly have a more hopeless look than that which was ever on her face. At last... I even got so sorry for her, who never said a word but what was quite forced from her, that I prayed for her, and I taught Miss Rosamond to pray for one who had done a deadly sin. But often, when she came to those words, she would listen and start up from her knees and say, I hear my little girl plaining and crying very sad. Oh, let her in or she will die. One night, just after New Year's Day had come at last, and the long winter had taken a turn as I hoped, I heard the west drawing-room bell ring three times, which was the signal for me. I would not leave Miss Rosamond alone, for all she was asleep, and for the old lord had been playing wilder than ever, and feared lest my darling should waken to hear the spectre-child see her, I knew she could not. I had fastened the windows too well for that, so I took her out of bed and wrapped her up in such outer clothes as were most handy, and carried her down to the drawing-room where the old lady sat at their tapestry work as usual. They looked up when I came in, and Mrs. Stark asked, quite astounded, "'Why did you bring Miss Rosamond there, out of her warm bed?' I had begun to whisper, because I was afraid of her being tempted out while I was away by the wild child in the snow, when she stopped me short with a glance at Miss Furnival and said Miss Furnival wanted me to undo some work she had done wrong, and which neither of them could seem to unpick. So I laid my pretty dear on the sofa, and sat down in the stool by them, and hardened my heart against them, as I heard the wind rising and howling. Miss Rosamond slept sound, for all the wind blew, so Miss Furnival never said a word, nor looked round when the gust shook the windows. All at once she started up to her full height, and put up one hand as if to bid us to listen. I hear voices, she said. I hear terrible screams. I hear my father's voice. Just at that moment, my darling wakened with a sudden start. My little girl is crying. Oh, how she is crying. And she tried to get up and go to her, but she got her feet entangled in the blanket, and I caught her up for my flesh had begun to creep at all the noises which they heard while we could catch no sound. In a minute or two the noises came and gathered fast and filled our ears. We too heard the voices and screams and no longer heard the winter's wind that raged abroad. Mrs. Stark looked at me and I at her, but we dared not to speak. Suddenly Miss Furnival went toward the door and out into the ante-room, through the west lobby, and opened the door to the great hall. Mrs. Stark followed, and I durst not be left, though my heart almost stopped beating for fear. I wrapped my darling tight in my arms and went out with them. In the hall the screams were louder than ever. 
They seem to come from the east wing, nearer and nearer, close to the other side of the locked-up doors, close behind them. Then I noticed that the great bronze chandelier seemed all alight, though the hall was dim, and that the fire was blazing in the vast hearth place, though it gave no heat. And I shuddered up with terror and folded my darling closer to me. But as I did so, the east door shook. And she, suddenly struggling to get free from me, cried, Hester, I must go. My little girl is there. I hear her. She is coming. Hester, I must go. I held her tight with all my strength. With a set will, I held her. If I had died, my hands would have grasped her still. I was so resolved in my mind. Miss Furnival stood listening and paid no regard to my darling, who had got down to the ground and whom I, upon my knees now, was holding with both my arms clasped around her neck, she still striving and crying to get free. All at once, the east door gave way with a thundering crash, as if torn open in a violent passion, and there came into that broad and mysterious light the figure of a tall old man with gray hair and gleaming eyes. He drove before him with many a relentless gesture of abhorrence, a stern and beautiful woman with a little child clinging to her dress. Oh, Hester, Hester, cried Miss Rosamond. It's the lady, the lady below the holly trees, and my little girl is with her. Hester, Hester, let me go to her. They are drawing me to them. I feel them, I feel them. I must go. Again, she was almost convulsed by her efforts to get away, but I held her tighter and tighter till I feared I should do her hurt, but rather that than let her go toward those terrible phantoms. They passed along toward the great hall door where the winds howled and ravened for their prey. But before they reached that, the lady turned, and I could see that she defied the old man with a fierce and proud defiance. But then she quailed, and then she threw up her arms wildly and piteously to save her child, her little child, from a blow from his uplifted crutch and Miss Rosamond was torn by a power stronger than mine and writhed in my arms and sobbed, for by this time the poor darling was growing faint. They want me to go with them onto the fells. They are drawing me to them. Oh, my little girl, I would come, but cruel, wicked Hester holds me very tight. But then when she saw the uplifted crutch, she swooned away, and I thanked God for it. Just at this moment, when the tall old man, his hair streaming as if in the blast of a furnace, was going to strike the little shrinking child, Miss Furnival, the old woman by my side, cried out, Oh, father, father, spare the innocent child! But just then I saw, we all saw, another phantom shape itself and grow clear out of the blue and misty light that filled the hall. We had not seen her till now, for it was another lady who stood by the old man with a look of relentless hate and triumphant scorn. The figure was very beautiful to look upon, with a soft white hat drawn down over the proud brows and a red and curling lip. It was dressed in an open robe of blue satin. I had seen that figure before. It was the likeness of Miss Furnival in her youth and the terrible phantoms moved on, regardless of old Mrs. Furnival's wild entreaty, and the uplifted crutch fell on the right shoulder of the little child, 
and the younger sister looked on stony and deadly serene. But at that moment, the dim lights and the fire that gave no heat went out of themselves. And Miss Furnival lay at our feet, stricken down by the palsy, death-stricken. Yes, she was carried to her bed that night, never to rise again. She lay with her face to the wall, muttering low, but muttering always, Alas, alas, what is done in youth can never be undone in age. What is done in youth can never be undone in age. You've been listening to Through a Glass Darkly from Jabberwocky Audio Theatre. Tonight's production, The Old Nurse's Story, written by Elizabeth Gaskell and performed by Carol McCaffrey. Part Two of Two, produced by Jabberwocky Audio Theatre in association with WERALP Radio Arlington, 96.7 FM, Arlington, Virginia. Recorded at Arlington Independent Media, with supplemental recording at Tohu Bohu Productions in Burke, Virginia. Post-production services provided by Tohu Bohu Productions, LLC. Edited, mixed, and mastered by William R. Coughlin. This recording is the property of Team Jabberwocky, LLC, and may not be rebroadcast, retransmitted, or redistributed without express permission from Team J. The underlying content, including the script, story, and characters, remain the exclusive property of their owners and are used with permission. For all the latest episodes and information on Jabberwocky Audio Theatre, visit jabberaudio.com. If you're enjoying Through a Glass, Darkly, and the other yarns we spin at Jabberwocky Audio Theatre, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast provider of choice. Check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash teamjabberwocky for exclusive content and to help us continue to bring you further tales of mysterious suspense and high adventure. Until next time, this is William R. Coughlin saying thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next thrilling production from Jabberwocky Audio Theater. Thou slain the Jabberwock.